passage we're looking at this morning, which I just read for you, John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54, starts with a strange conjunction or joining of statements. I don't know if you caught it when I was reading through. But it says, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus is not leaving a place where he had no honor. The reference is not Samaria. It doesn't say that Jesus was leaving Samaria because he had no honor there, and now he's going for greener pastures in Galilee. In fact, Jesus was from Galilee, and so the hometown spoken of here refers to that region, Galilee. Jesus is going to his hometown, as it were, Galilee. For Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. You catch then the strangeness of the conjunction. Jesus departed for his hometown, for in his hometown he would have no honor. Essentially, that's what's being said here. Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus had testified he's not going to have any honor in Galilee. It's a strange conjunction, isn't it? Jesus will go to Galilee because there he will have no honor. Jesus will have no honor in Galilee, therefore he will go to Galilee. This is the sense of verses 43 and 44. It would have made more intuitive sense to us if John had said, although, instead of for. Jesus departed for Galilee, although he had testified that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Although he would have no honor in Galilee, nevertheless, Jesus went there anyway. That would have made a lot more sense to us. Although, it seems to our minds, intuitively, would have been a better conjunction than for. But we know that not one jot or tittle of the scripture is by accident. And here we have the conjunction for. Instead of although. Consider with me why although would make sense to us. But for doesn't make sense to us. The answer is actually very simple. We can't conceive of Jesus doing something for the very reason that it would fail. Because that's not how we operate. We assume that Jesus would not do something for the very reason that that it would fail. We can't envision Jesus going somewhere for the very reason that he will have no honor there. We can't conceive of Jesus going somewhere in order that he would be rejected. Carson reminds us, however, that it would be entirely out of character for Jesus to choose his next destination based on the basis of where he would most be honored. It would be out of character, wouldn't it? Jesus doesn't crave the applause of sinful men. Is Jesus a people pleaser? Is Jesus looking for validation from those to whom he ministers? Jesus, we read at the end of John chapter 2, didn't entrust himself to those who believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Why? Because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Elsewhere we we read in the Gospel of John that he does not receive praise from men. Jesus is not one that's out to make everybody happy 
win a popularity contest. So Carson says it would be out of character for Jesus to choose his next destination on the basis of where he would most be honored. Leon Morris goes a step further, though, and he says Jesus had come onto his own, not under a delusion that he would be welcomed, but knowing full well that he must experience rejection. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That was not a surprise to Jesus. Sorry, that last sentence was my words. Now I'm going back to finish the Morris quote. This would not take him by surprise, for it was in the divine plan. So to fulfill all this implies, Jesus went to Galilee. End quote. Let me give that to you in full since I interjected my own words there in the middle the first time. Jesus had come unto his own, not under a delusion that he would be welcomed, but knowing full well that he must experience rejection. This would not take him by supply, surprise, for it was in the divine plan. So to fulfill all this, Jesus went to Galilee. End quote. Though John's gospel includes statements like, salvation is from the Jews, chapter 4 and verse 22, we just read it a couple weeks ago. Though John's gospel says things like statement, statements like, salvation is from the Jews, its thrust is really to show, as verse 42 of John chapter 4 says, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this involves, for John as the author, telling the story of Jewish rejection. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. It is after Jewish rejection that God acts to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the way that he has in this New Testament age. It is after Jewish branches were broken off that Gentile branches are grafted in. And so Jesus must be rejected by the Jews, including the Galileans, before the gates of heaven are flung wide open, as it were, to the Gentiles. So it is God's purpose that Jesus be rejected in Galilee. And this is why we read, Jesus departed to Galilee for Jesus had prophesied, testified rather, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So verses 43 and 44 of John chapter 4 serve to set up what we may expect to read about in the next couple of chapters. Jesus is going to Galilee to fulfill the Father's purpose of being rejected. That's what the next couple of chapters in John are going to show us. We're going to see Jesus ministering in Galilee and ultimately being rejected. Eventually, the whole Gospel of John will end with Jesus' rejection. By both Galileans and Judeans. And his crucifixion at their hands. And so in this sense, the rejection prophesied in verse 44 will be a harbinger 
a further rejection to come also. We're going to see Jesus rejected in Galilee, ultimately at the end of chapter 6, but then we're going to see him rejected further, even by Judeans at the end of the gospel, and crucified. In view of all this, it is a wonder of wonders that knowing full well that he would be rejected by the Jews, Jesus came anyway. Knowing that he would be crucified, Jesus came anyway. And to state it even more strongly, for the purpose, for the very purpose of being rejected and crucified by the Jews, Jesus came into the world. That was why he came. Therefore, he came. This is the sense of the conjunction for in verses 43 and 44 of John chapter 4. Jesus went to Galilee for the purpose of being rejected there to fulfill God's plan. So that's an introduction to this morning's sermon. It's also an introduction to this next section of John, which we'll be looking at over the next couple of months, realistically. So let's begin looking at Jesus' rejection in Galilee by considering the narrative that's now presented to us in verses 46 to 54 about the healing of the official son. And the first thing we will consider is the official's acceptance as opposed to the official's rejection of Jesus. And the fact that we will start with someone in Galilee accepting Jesus might seem strange considering that I just emphasized that the next couple of chapters are going to focus on Jesus' rejection in Galilee. But the prophesied rejection in Galilee does not necessarily entail universal rejection. That is, rejection without any exceptions. It may be said, truly, that a prophet is without honor in his hometown, and yet some may listen. Paul speaks to this in Romans 11, when dealing with the Jewish rejection of the gospel. He cites himself as an example of a believing Jew. And then he points back to 1 Kings when Elijah had said, I'm the only one left. And God said to him, no, I've reserved 7,000 believing men. And Paul concludes his argument after citing those two examples by stating that so too at the present time there is a remnant. And so you can say that the Jews rejected Jesus, but that doesn't mean every Jew without exception has rejected Jesus. There will always be a remnant in Galilee in the time of Jesus where he went to be rejected. There was a remnant among the Jews to this day who by and large have rejected Jesus. There is a remnant. And among our unbelieving friends and family members, those in our spheres of influence, there is a remnant. But we may say, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, that generally speaking, our gospel is veiled. Isn't it the truth? We went out last weekend in the neighborhood evangelizing. People won't even answer the doors. They won't even come out and talk to us. They won't even listen. Many of them. Many more will hear us out. Or pardon me, not many more. Fewer 
a few of them will hear us out. And yet even to most of them, the gospel is veiled. We didn't see a revival sparked last weekend when we went out. Our gospel is veiled. Many people reject the gospel. Many people reject Jesus. At present, at this, in this pocket of space and time in Barbados in the 21st century, most have rejected Jesus. And yet, there is a remnant. Look around you at your brothers and sisters in the pews. And there are faithful worshipers all around this island. This morning gathered because they have believed widespread rejection such that you can generally say the gospel is not popular doesn't mean universal rejection that no one will believe. It didn't mean that here and it doesn't mean that now. So let us, like Jesus, Continue with the mission in face of rejection and opposition with optimism that there is a remnant chosen by grace, as Paul says in Romans 11. A remnant like this believing official in our passage today. When Jesus says in verse 50 to this man, go and your son will live, the man considers his issue resolved. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, verse 51. This implies faith in Jesus' ability and faith in Jesus' integrity to do that which he has said. The man had faith in Jesus' ability to say the word and heal his son. Go and your son will live. If I phoned my doctor and I said, doctor, I'm real sick. I got stomach problems, I got gastrointestinal issues. And he said, don't worry, hang up the phone and you will be fine. I would not have faith that his word has the ability to heal me. But this man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. He had faith in Jesus' ability to do that which he had said from a distance. If you go into a government office to resolve an issue that you've been having. For us, it might be an immigration issue. For you, it might be something else. And you speak to someone and they say, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. (laughs) Do you trust the integrity? The integrity that this issue is resolved because this person said this issue is resolved. Or will you feel the need to get further assurance? Get it in writing? Will you feel the need to follow up? This man has faith not only in Jesus' ability, but in Jesus' integrity that he has said, go and your son will live. Not only is Jesus able, but if Jesus has said his son will live, his son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus, if I may put a spin on C.S. Lewis's famous phrase, Jesus here to this man could only be a healer or a lunatic or a liar. 
And this man believed that he was not a lunatic, that he actually had the ability. He believed that this man was not a liar, but he had, uh, had the integrity also. And therefore, this man was a healer. And so the man considered his issue resolved. He took Jesus at his word. Jesus had issued the man a challenge in verse 48 to believe without seeing. Look at verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this you is plural, by the way. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. That includes this man. Then Jesus brings the issue to a head by saying something to him. Go and your son will live. He confronted this man with a problem in his heart, which is that unless he sees signs and wonders, he will not believe. And then he brought the issue to a head and said, I'm not going to show you any signs and wonders. I'm just going to tell you something. Go and your son will live. And this man had to decide between remaining that which he was at the beginning of this narrative and stay and hang around Jesus and press the matter further and say, well, Jesus, can you put that in writing? Can you do a sign and wonder here and now to give me confidence that you will do the sign and wonder that I'm asking you to do in the matter of my son? Perhaps if you could turn this stone into bread, I could have faith that you could heal my son. Perhaps if you could turn water into wine here and now, I could have faith that you would heal my son. You see, Jesus brings this issue to a head. This man has to either take Jesus at his word, which would be a new thing for him, or he has to stay the way he is and see a sign and wonder before he believes. This man takes Jesus at his word in this instance. He responds with faith in Jesus' ability and integrity. And you see, this is the kind of acceptance that Jesus requires from all people. That we take Jesus at his word. That we trust in his ability and his integrity to do that which he has promised. We don't put him on trial and make him prove himself to us. We don't try to get him to jump through hoops before we believe. We believe in his ability and his integrity to do that that which he has said he will do. That's the nature of true faith in Jesus. So sinners, will you respond as this man responded to what Jesus has promised with faith in Jesus' ability and integrity to do that? Not concerning the healing of your son, Because Jesus hasn't promised that to you. If you had a sick son, you don't read this passage and go, see, Jesus promises to heal. Go and your son will leave. I receive that as a promise to me because this wasn't written to you. 
This didn't happen to you. The circumstances are different. He promised this man his son would live. He doesn't promise us that our sons will live. So the circumstances are different, but the principle is the same. Will you respond to what Jesus has promised? With faith in his ability and his integrity to follow through on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, we've read it. It's a promise of God. It should be fresh in our ears and in our minds as we come to this section of John chapter 4. Or even earlier in John chapter 4. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That same living water is held out to each and every one of us. Will you take him at his word that he will give you living water? That believing in him, you will not perish. Though you deserve to go to hell, that Jesus will save you from that, that he is able to save you from that, that he has the integrity to save you from that, should you believe in him. Because that's what he has promised in his word. Jesus came to bear the punishment that sinners deserve so that he could hold out that kind of hope to us. Jesus came to offer up a life of sinlessness, obedience to God's law, loving God with his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving his neighbor with him as himself perfectly. In the place of us who haven't done that, he died on the cross bearing the punishment that sinners deserve for our law-breaking, though he had no law-breaking of his own. So that whoever believes in him shifts their confidence away from their own law-keeping to his will not perish but have everlasting life. That he can make your relationship with God new. So that God himself comes to dwell in you as a fountain or a spring of living water. Which wells up in you to eternal life. Do you believe that Jesus can do that for you? Because that is what he has promised to do for you in the scripture. Should you believe? That is the kind of response that this man offers to Jesus in albeit different circumstances. He takes Jesus at his word. He believes in Jesus' ability and integrity to do that which he has promised. That's the kind of response that this man offers. It's acceptance, not rejection. And that's what it looks like for us to accept Jesus rather than to reject him. But let's look now at the people's rejection of Jesus. Jesus is indicting not commending the people in verse 48 for the reality that unless they see signs and wonders, they will not believe. He's stating a fact, but he's not commending them for it. He's indicting them for it. And Jesus is indicting them 
for it, not merely acknowledging it. You have to understand that this is not just Jesus just stating a bare fact of how it is that people come to faith. Which is how sometimes you hear this scripture twisted. If we really want to reach people out there, we got to do signs and wonders. Because unless people see signs and wonders, they will not believe. Even Jesus said that. John chapter 4 and verse 48. Jesus is not merely stating a fact that epistemologically this is how faith comes. Nor is Jesus commending them for it like, you're, oh, you're believing God for signs and wonders. Good for you. Let's all believe God for signs and wonders. Isn't that what God wants us to do? Because after all, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So there's a connection between faith and signs and wonders. So let's believe God for signs and wonders. Again, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not merely stating bare fact, nor is he commending them for it. He's indicting them for it. This is a negative thing. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38 and Matthew 16 verse 4, Jesus says that an evil and adulterous generation, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Jesus is saying a similar thing here. It's not a good thing that unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But this point is hard to understand for the obvious reason that Jesus and his apostles actually did perform signs and wonders. So why would they do it if we're not supposed to seek after these things? And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that God also bore witness by signs and wonders. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So why would the scriptures say these things if we're not supposed to seek after signs and wonders? And why would Jesus indict the people here in John chapter 4 for this? In view of all these things. Well, there is a subtle difference between seeking after signs and wonders and not believing unless we see signs and wonders on one hand. And the strengthening of our faith by signs and wonders on the other hand. Consider that if Jesus had never healed anyone... If Jesus had never done any miracles, feeding the thousands, turning water into wine, walking on water, if Jesus had never done any of those signs, and let's say that he rose from the dead secretly instead of publicly. Let's say he didn't roll the stone away, which wasn't for his sake, but our sake. It's not like he was trapped behind the stone. Jesus walked through the locked door into the upper room to be with his disciples after the resurrection. Jesus could have just came through the stone. So he could have just came through the stone in the night while the guards were sleeping and in the morning, the women who would have came to anoint the body 
I mean, who knows what would have happened? I guess maybe the soldiers would have rolled the stone away and then they would have been like, what happened here? I don't know. But maybe then he wouldn't have, if he hadn't have appeared to anyone else, whatever, we wouldn't have the evidence or the confidence or the even the statement of Scripture that he had risen from the dead. Consider that if none of these things had happened, it would be much harder to believe Jesus when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Now, obviously, we're, we're stretching our imagination here because Jesus did do miracles and Jesus did rise from the dead publicly and so on and so forth. But if in such a situation, Jesus had never done those miracles and he rose secretly, we would still have a resurrected Christ who is no less powerful, no less able. He would still be able to say to us, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And we still ought to take him at his word. If the situation that I just described were the case. Because signs and wonders don't make God able. They don't make God trustworthy. I, you hear this a lot of times in cessationist circles. That God authenticated his message with signs and wonders. But I really don't like that word. You know why? Because that implies that unless God did signs and wonders, the message wasn't authentic. But the authenticity of the message has nothing to do with signs and wonders. God's message is authentic because it's God's message. You understand? So I prefer words like corroborate. That it's very consistent with the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That he said, Lazarus, come out. And that he, he himself rose from the dead publicly. And made a spectacle of it and made sure there were lots of witnesses to it. It fits very well with Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life. That he actually raised people from the dead. And that he himself actually rose from the dead. It would have been a lot harder to take God at his word without signs and wonders. Even though we still should have taken God at his word. Or we still would, ought to. I'm not sure exactly how you say that. But if that were the case, we still should take God at his word. But it would be a lot harder not to. Let me give you a couple of real life examples, which I think further illustrate the difference between the wrong kind of seeking a sign and the legitimacy of appreciating a sign. So again, this is all under the rubric, just to refresh your memory, this is all under the rubric of the difference between seeking after signs and wonders and not believing unless we see signs and wonders on one hand, and the strengthening of our faith by signs and wonders on the other hand. I just explained that we should take God at his word, even if there are no signs and wonders, but signs and wonders help us and strengthen our faith. I just explained that issue. Let me give you a couple of real life examples, which I think further illustrate the difference in the 
wrong way to approach signs and wonders and the right way to approach signs and wonders. There are many who flock to certain religious events where you are promised a healing or a miracle or an encounter with God. Many who will flock to those things. You make a poster, you put someone's face on it, and you put words like miracles, signs, wonders, healings, encounters, fresh, wind, right? You understand what I'm saying? There are many who flock to those kind of religious events, but they would never set foot in a church that doesn't promise those kinds of things. Never mind if the word of God is faithfully preached. Because they're not interested in the word of God faithfully preached. They are interested in all of those buzzwords on the poster. So you say, come, come visit my church because our preacher opens up the word of God to us. And they're like, yeah, but are there signs and wonders? Is there a fresh wind of the spirit blowing? Are there, you understand what I'm saying? This is the sort of thing that Jesus rebukes here. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. These same people are the same sort of people who are prone to leave off their search for God when they don't get the miracle they wanted. Yeah, I tried God once. I tried Christianity once. But then my son died. I tried, I tried God once, but then someone I loved got sick. And I prayed for them, and I believed, and I tried it, but it didn't work. It's the same people that flock to those kinds of events that leave when they don't get the miracle or the sign or the wonder or the encounter with God that they were looking for. Unless they see signs and wonders, they will not believe. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. By way of analogy, consider the friend who only calls you when they need something. Or the person who seems genuinely glad to meet, make, make your acquaintance when they first meet you. You feel like you really hit it off. Reasonably quickly, a request comes for something. They just need to borrow a little bit of money or this or that. And you refuse and that relationship fizzles out as quick as it started. This is the sort of attitude towards signs and wonders that God despises. You come to him hoping to get what you want on the terms that you want. And God is simply a genie in a bottle to you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is indicting here in this passage before us. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. 
But when God says, no, you don't get that miracle right now. No, it's, it's my purpose to leave you in that wheelchair. No, it's my purpose that your loved one is going to pass from this life. No, it's my purpose that you walk a hard and difficult road. And I'm not going to give you what you want on the terms that you want it. And you continue to follow anyway. Then you're poised, your heart is poised to appreciate in the right way whatever miraculous intervention God may make in your life. Whatever signs and wonders he may see fit to grant. If God says, so to speak, go and your son will live. You appreciate that. If your loved one recovers, you appreciate that. If by means of the medical system, you're able to get some relief from your pain, or even you're able to reverse your condition, or by some supernatural touch, the Lord heals you entirely. You're poised to appreciate in the right way that miraculous intervention. When you believe on the bare word of God, that God will do what he has said, what he has promised, that he is able, and that he has the integrity to do what he has promised. <clears throat> You're not expecting him to do more than that for you. You don't have a sense of entitlement for him to do more than that for you. And you're not depending on him to do more than that for you. Then, when God miraculously heals someone dear to you, or providentially provides for your financial needs, or whatever, then you are simply strengthened and encouraged. Your faith wasn't on the rocks without those things. And so it's not like those things rescued your faith. When your heart is in the right place, these things simply come to serve as a good reminder of God's sovereignty over the laws of nature and his care for you, if and when they do happen. So let me make this point abundantly clear. The sort of welcome that Jesus gets in verse 45. Look at your Bibles. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. But wait a second, verse 44 just told us that they were going to reject him. The sort of welcome that Jesus gets in verse 45 by people who won't believe unless they see signs and wonders. That sort of welcome is interpreted by Jesus as no honor in verse 44. It's not as if Jesus said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Therefore, I have to go to Galilee. 
And then he gets to Galilee and the people welcomed him. And he says, oh, I guess I was wrong. You understand Jesus' interpretation of this kind of welcome? Is y'all don't honor me like you ought. You don't receive me the way you should. The way you're welcoming me is like a rejection. There are those who in chapter 2 and verse 23 have some sort of belief in Jesus when they see the signs. But Jesus doesn't count it as genuine faith. It's the same sort of people who in John chapter 6 and verse 26, Jesus said are following him simply to get a loaf of bread. It's the same sort of people who in John chapter 8, verses 31 and following, are first said to believe, but by the end of the passage they're insulting Jesus, saying that he was born of sexual immorality, and some of them even end up saying that he has a demon. And it's the same sort of people who in our day and age are chasing a supernatural encounter, quote-unquote, with God and signs and wonders and will not have anything to do with Jesus if he does not do what they want on the terms they want. They don't want the Jesus described here, envisioned here, in this book. They want the Jesus described here. From the words of their own mouths and their own teachers whom they have accumulated to themselves to tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And they want the type of Jesus that is envisioned here in their evil and adulterous hearts. There is a way of appearing to welcome Jesus as the Galileans appeared to welcome Jesus in verse 45. But as it was in those days, so it is now. Jesus interprets that kind of welcome as rejection. Jesus interprets that kind of welcome as no honor in verse 44 of our passage. So will you be among those who, like the official in our passage today, Rest in Jesus' ability and integrity to do the things, first of all, that he has promised, and second of all, before you see it. Or will you be among those who have an opportunistic sort of faith in Jesus, coming only to get what you want on the terms that you want it, and you are prepared to leave if Jesus doesn't deliver what you hope he will? Are you the type of person who calls Jesus on the phone, so to speak, only when you want something? 
Or are you committed to trust? <clears throat> are you committed in trust to the goodness of his person? And simply willing to receive whatever he chooses to provide or not to provide. Remember that welcoming Jesus as if he is simply a genie in the bottle is actually no welcome at all. It's just a religious way of rejecting Jesus. Receiving Jesus as if he is simply a genie in the bottle is no welcome at all. It's simply a religious way of rejecting Jesus. If that's you, repent and believe in the true gospel, which is not that Jesus is going to do whatever signs and wonders you want him to. That you say jump and he says how high. That you hold a hoop out and he jumps through it. That he completes and works through all the red tape that you give him to work through in his application to be your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe in the true gospel, which is that Jesus will do what he has promised. He has the ability and the integrity to do whatsoever he has promised. You can bring whatever you wish to him and ask him to do for you whatever you wish. And he may say yes and he may say no. But you need to come to him and ask, not demand. And you can't rest your faith in the signs and the wonders or the lack of the signs and wonders that you so badly want him to do. Simply take God at his word, what he has said. Whatever signs and wonders you may or may not see. Then you'll be poised to actually appreciate whatever signs and wonders you may see throughout the course of your lifetime. They will strengthen your faith as opposed to make your faith. In your mind, they will corroborate the message as opposed to authenticate the message. And then you won't be shook in those situations where you don't see them. May all of us, by God's grace, be able to take God at his word. May we all truly welcome Jesus by trusting in his ability and his integrity to do what he has promised. First and foremost, to save us from our sins, but also to fulfill every other promise recorded for us in Scripture. And may we not be like that evil and adulterous generation that has the wrong approach to Jesus and the signs and wonders that he is well able but sovereignly retains control over. <clears throat>